Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio, talking about the problems people have with their work. Whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome to our show, Punching Out, from the Punching Out Collective. I'm Karen, and I'm sitting here with my friends and co-hosts, Lyle. Hi, glad to be here. And Rich. Howdy. We're one of the three teams bringing you the Punching Out show each week. For our first episode, you heard Abby, Bobak, and Alfred, who spoke to Parisa about her first job out of college at the Science Factory. If you miss the show, you can find it on our show page at wayofm.org. We're calling this episode Capitalism Heal Thyself, and we're talking about nurses. Nursing is a great lens through which to understand the state of work in late capitalism. When I say late capitalism, I'm referring to what Annie Lowry in The Atlantic calls the indignities and absurdities of the modern economy but also to give a nod to my growing suspicion that capitalism is advancing to its most exposed, pregnant moment. So let's look at capitalism through the lens of nursing. Lyle, start us off. Yeah, sure. So there's a, there's a story that went viral, viral recently on the internet. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, have heard about it already. I'm, I'm going to read a few paragraphs from um, one of the initial, initial Washington Post pieces on the event. So the, the dateline was September 2nd, and the headline is, This is crazy, sobs Utah hospital nurse as cop roughs her up, arrests, arrests her for doing her job. And this is the actual in- introduction to the story. By all accounts, the head nurse at the University of Utah Hospital's burn unit was was professional and restrained when she she told a Salt Lake City police detective he wasn't allowed to draw blood from a badly injured patient. The detective didn't have a warrant first off, and the patient wasn't conscious, so he couldn't give consent. Without that, the detective was barred from collecting blood samples, not just by hospital policy, but by basic constitutional law. Still, Detective Jeff Payne insisted that he be let, let in to take the blood, saying the nurse would be arrested and charged if she refused. Nurse Alex Wupples politely stood her ground. She got her supervisor on the phone so Payne would hear the decision loud and clear. Sir, said the supervisor, you're making a huge mistake because you're threatening a nurse. Payne snapped. He seized hold of the nurse, shoved her out of the building, and cuffed her hands behind her back. A bewildered Wubbles screamed, help me. And quote, you're assaulting me as the detective forced her into an unmarked car and accused her of interfering with an investigation. So, you know, when I when I first read about this incident, when I first um, watched the video online, I just thought to myself, this is every this is what this represents everything that's wrong with our society. First of all, the, there's the violence, particularly the police violence. Um, there's the clear misogyny. Uh, and in fact, we found out days after the story came out that the cop who was involved in this incident um, had previously been reprimanded for sexual harassment um, himself. Um, there's the dis- disrespect for care workers. 
uh, again, this is a profession that's primarily dominated by by women or, or, or people that are gendered female. There's the normalization of the surveillance police state. And there's also um, this aspect of, of, of how um, th- this incident in some ways showcased um, something, you know, something terrible, terribly wrong about our society in its absence. And so this is a cliche point. But worth repeating that the very fact we're talking about this incident is because it's a white person being abused by the cops and mm-hmm. a professional person at that. Um, it, it's a cop um, who feels comfortable treating a white professional in this way on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, so this you know, leads me to ask, um, what else does this cop do um, off camera? Um, mm-hmm. what, what does he feel comfortable doing off cam- camera, particularly toward members of more marginalized and less protected groups? Mm-hmm. And finally, um, the one thing that might really make sure this cop gets his comeuppance is the fact that his victim in this case belongs to a relatively powerful labor union. So uh, what if most victims of cops were members of such institutions? Also, I you know just as a side note, um, I think this incident... Um, strengthens the case for what's called social movement unionism, um, which is the idea that unions aren't only serving for the for the interests of their workers, the meats and potatoes of their own contracts, but are also serving for broader political causes or political campaigns. Um, so in this case, you know, um, joining in the fight against police violence uh, makes a lot of sense, not only for the most obvious victims of police violence, but for everyone, including including white professional nurses. Hmm. Yeah. So what what struck me most about the incident was the uh, the the disrespect uh, between the you know the officer and the nurse that you know obviously got expressed through violence. Uh, like you mentioned, nursing is a, a classically pink collar job. Ninety one percent of nurses are women. Uh, it's it's a classic way for women and especially women of color to uh, attain a you know decent salary and a relatively comfortable job, uh, but also it's a position that, despite its popularity and despite uh, people's warm feelings toward nurses, is also one where uh, people suffer from disrespect. Uh, nurses you know struggle with patients who are you know admittedly going through their own difficult times. Uh, they often feel uh, disrespected at the hands of residents uh, who often, d- frankly, don't know as much as they do, but nonetheless have a status higher than them because of the, the MD next to their name. Um, and so you, you're, you're absolutely right to say that unions are probably the best way for nurses to assert their respect and uh, ensure their safety and their, uh, their status in their own workplace as well. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that stick out for me. Well, there's probably 10 things that stick out for me with this story. But um, some of, I know that we're talking about nurses, but we ha- have to talk about police when we have this kind of discussion with an incident like this. And I think it's stunning that the law she was upholding was at least two years old. I think it may have even been more than that. Um, and so... This is like a law for the police about how they can do blood draws. And she knew the law, but the police officer didn't. The police officer's supervisor didn't seem to know the law. That's just bald-faced incompetence. And I can't believe that there are protections in place for police officers 
I mean, obviously, I can believe it because we see it every day, particularly in poor neighborhoods. Um, they get away with this. And whether it's brute force or incompetence, the responses should be the same. It shouldn't be allowed. It's stunning to me. So there's another minor point that I wanted to make about this story, which is, and I, some other people may know the answer to this. Why were they trying to take a blood draw from a patient whose injury was the result of a police chase? So is this like normal procedure? The, the police officer who was in the room trying to do the blood draw was doing it on behalf of another police precinct. And the person they wanted the blood from was the victim resulting from a police chase. So are they just hoping that they're not liable, that they'll find out this guy was drunk? Like, what's going on there? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and I do not have the answer. Um, I think it just speaks to uh, the overall lack of accountability when it comes to um, our police um, and those that are supposed to be guarding us. Mm -hmm. So um, I, we're going to take a quick break now, um, but I believe when we get back, um, Karen, you'll be relaying bits and pieces from your interview with an actual nurse, if I'm correct. <laughs> yep. And uh, so I look forward to that. We'll be right back. This is Punching Out, a project of the Punching Out Collective, and we want to hear about the struggles you face as a worker. You can tell us your stories by sending an email to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, and we're on Twitter, at punchingoutwayo. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. So we are going to move from listening to this national story to listening to the story of a nurse I know and like, whose name is Sarah. Uh, Sarah grew up pretty poor in New York City and said that nursing as a career actually seemed out of reach to her. And Rich, you mentioned earlier that nursing is often a vehicle for women, especially women of color, to move out of poverty. Um, Sarah's not a woman of color, but she certainly grew up in poverty. Um, she tried college for the first time as an art history major, but dropped out. She looked into becoming a medical assistant, but she didn't act on it. Something changed. She witnessed a car accident and was not, in her words, quote, able to render assistance to some very injured people. And that really affected her. She decided to become an EMT, and she did, in fact, become an EMT. So she applied to nursing school. And Sarah has been an emergency department nurse for the past 17 years. Wow. <laughs> so I asked Sarah what she wanted people to know about the job of nursing. And first off, I'm going to read a couple of quotes from her. Mostly, I would like people to know that this isn't a job for any of us. It's a lifestyle. When you're a nurse, that sense of caring carries over into everything. It defines you, and we take pride in that. Nurses, especially fellow ED nurses, are constantly on. And when we are overcrowded and short-staffed and work 16 hours, there's only so much your body and mind can take. A lot of the newer nurses burn out. We are also highly educated and scientific. It's not all about hand-holding and bedpans. The other thing to know about nursing is that the work is dangerous. Um, 
obviously we just heard the national story about where the danger was coming from the police. Uh, but Sarah had a lot more to say about that. Um, she said, we are struggling to deal with a culture that doesn't recognize how unsafe it is to be an RN. Just the other day, I triaged a homeless man who walked through the security check-in who was complaining he was hallucinating and felt like he wanted to kill himself. He was roomed, and when the primary nurse was getting him undressed, he asked if the patient had any weapons. Lo and behold, he pulled out a 12-inch knife from his bag. Now, triage is in a closed corner of the waiting room with the nurse seated behind a shield, but in a corner against a wall, and the patient sits right next to them, and there is no escape route if a patient gets violent. Here in California, there was a law passed with regards to reporting violence against nurses. I have to say, we are still fearful. We had a mandatory training that was one full day, and they showed us these insane synchronized dance moves to disarm someone with a knife and gun. And I can't remember if my left foot moves forward and I reach with my right hand. And she says, I mean, Jesus, who will remember choreography when they are in that situation? But the hospital was able to check off that we had that training. So they are in the clear. Do you guys have any thoughts about the kind of violence? So Sarah's case just illustrates a, a common experience for many nurses is they don't feel safe in their workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, hospital administrations are interested in maximizing profits more than uh, ensuring the safety of their employees. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's a, a perfectly you know, great example of the, the limits of uh, how far an administration cares. Uh, so they, as long as they can check a box for safety, uh, then they've done their job mm -hmm. and the nurses are, are left to kind of fend for themselves after that. Yeah. And one of the reasons that we're talking about unions and we've mentioned it and we're going to have a segment coming up on healthcare workers unions is that these are policy areas that unions can represent in. Right. So uh, unions don't just ask for higher wages they also weigh in as a collective voice for the workers in what should nursing staffing ratios be? What should the violence policy be? How should administrators step up to interact with police when the police are wrong on behalf of employees? Um, so we'll say more about that. I did actually ask Sarah about being a part of a nurses union. She's in the California Nurses Association, which is part of the National Nurses United. In a few minutes, we will hear more from Rich about the history of 1199, another healthcare workers union that covers all kinds of nurses. So we're LPNs, nurse practitioners, RNs, but not just nurses, lab technicians, dietary techs, service and maintenance workers. So here's what Sarah said about her union. We've done a lot of work to ensure safe staffing ratios, which puts a cost on the hospital and that probably is a tough thing for them to get over. Okay, so this next quote is a little long. Um, Sarah actually goes on a rant that I really appreciate. So I'm gonna try to read her whole rant uh, because she really picks up steam. But I am sorry, you cannot expect a nurse to have five, six, maybe seven patients and provide good care, especially in critical care areas, pediatrics, hell, anywhere. Imagine a nurse taking care of your loved one who is having a stroke and needs TPA. Okay, you guys, I had to, so she started getting really geeked out on nursing terminology. So I looked up 
I looked up TPA. It's tissue plasminogen activator. So let me do that again. Imagine a nurse taking care of your loved one who's having a stroke and needs TPA. And imagine that nurse has six other patients, maybe a septic infant and an 85-year-old with dementia and a combative drunk, and your loved one needs TPA, which requires monitoring and reassessment every 15 minutes, at least to assess if their stroke is improving or if they start to bleed out, because TPA will sometimes do that. And then the chest pain patient is actually having an MI. That's myocardial infarction, I think, and needs your help, and the drunk falls out of bed. Why would anyone think one person could do that workload? And why, as a business model, would you want that? Anyway, our union is pretty great and strong, but I have to say, I think living in the Bay Area, nurses struggle with the high cost of living. We put our lives literally on the line and still can't own a house, and some 20-year-old who creates an app to bicycle you some coffee is making a million dollars and driving up the home prices. It used to be that this type of job earned you a house and a modest vacation, but that dream of middle-class luxury is bullcrap. It frustrates me that what people get paid does not equate to what they produce or the impact they have on the world. It sucks for teachers, too. <laughs> so <laughs> another, solidarity, another solidarity with teachers. Um, not a big surprise coming from a nurse. I want to highlight two of the things she said in that. It frustrates me that what people get paid does not equate to what they produce or the impact they have on the world. Okay, you guys, so the really the question of the half hour is, why as a business would you want that? What do you think? So, I mean, this is clearly one of the fundamental problems with capitalism, right? I mean, th there is no correlation between how hard one works or how socially beneficial their work happens to be and the degree to which they are actually compensated. In fact, if anything, there seems to be an inverse relationship where those with the most money, money um, tend to be heirs or beneficiaries of extreme passive in income from speculative investments um, and other, you know, other rents um, that can, can actually not be justified on the grounds of either efficiency or morality. Um, and or these people are operating in industries that are the opposite of socially beneficial, but in fact destructive or extractive. So I'm thinking of the military industrial complex, I'm thinking of finance, I'm thinking of insurance, I'm thinking of real estate, I'm thinking of um, the fossil fuels uh, industry. So, um, you know, th this is one of the major reasons um, capitalism tends not to work for, you know, n normal average people. There's an old old labor term from the uh, the textile industry. It's called stretching out. Uh, it's the idea is uh, you pay you pay workers uh, a set wage and then progressively assign them more and more and more work until they're quite literally stretched out like the threads in a loom, uh, and they mm. snap. Uh, and that's what you see a lot in nursing. And you know, perfectly illustrated in the anecdote. You know, you're tending six seven patients. That's way too much for one person to handle. But that means one fewer nurse the hospital has to pay for. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, you know, one nurse they can uh, just stretch until that person can't take anymore, unfortunately. And then, you know, there's not a ton of nurses waiting in the wings. I mentioned there's a nursing mm -hmm. shortage, uh, but it's, it's a way to keep labor costs down. Yeah, so I think when you say that, Rich, I hadn't heard that before. Um, it's a really good analogy. Um, 
it seems like when you break, like when you're so stretched out that you break, you are personally responsible for all of the ways in which that makes you vulnerable, right? right. So people can't leave jobs. Um, it's really... So it brings up something else for me. Um, why as business would you want that? And so now we have businesses stretching their employees farther and farther and farther, doing more, often for stagnant wages. Um, right, the stagnation of wages is the point. Yeah. So what? So there's this thing, and I'm not I'm not very good at explaining it. So there's this idea, I think, in our society and in capitalism that people are and should be and that it's totally okay to be motivated by profit. And even in our healthcare system where we're treating people who are, are vulnerable and in need and often have even their very lives on the line. So it's there's a fundamental paradox that we celebrate people who are motivated by profit. We do everything we can to take away barriers to people being able to make a profit. But at the same time, we expect workers to work for nothing. Like somehow the rich can be motivated by profit and that's laudable. But if the poor are motivated to have higher wages, and I would argue in this case, that's not profit, that's actually necessary for living that that's not correct. The correct way to motivate workers is to make them do more for less, to make sure they're so desperate to keep their jobs that they can't leave a terrible job. And that's really screwed up. I don't know if I explained it very well. I think that's a great point, and I think it leads perfectly into the final segment of this show, where we're going to be talking about an organization, a union, uh, that fights on behalf of higher wages, better benefits, and an overall better society. So uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester, 104.3 FM. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. There are three million nurses in this country. Uh, there are millions more support staff for hospitals. And one of the biggest unions that represents them in the country, and in the Northeast at least, is 1199 SEIU. You can get a sense of 1199 SEIU's significance right there in its name. They put their local number first. Most unions follow the, the pattern of the, the union international acronym and then the local number after it. But because of 1199's deep independent history, uh, they claim uh, their own independent status within SEIU. They're the largest local in SEIU, 300,000 members, uh, makes them one of the largest unions in their own right in the country. So I thought today we'd talk a little bit about their history and about how they came to represent nurses in this country and hospital staff broadly, uh, and how they became, what, in, in a sense, what Lyle referred to as a social movement union. 1199's origins are surprisingly in the drugstores of New York City in the 1930s. A man by the name of Leon Davis, trained as a pharmacist, later took a job as a uh, a pharmacy clerk, uh, organized uh, pharmacy workers in New York City uh, on an industrial model. 
So an industrial model is basically a union that attempts to organize not by craft, not by skill, but by an entire industry. So rather than organizing just nurses or just pharmacy workers, it or tries to organize every healthcare worker in the case of 1199 SEIU. How did they get from being uh primarily so i know what their goal was to be an industrial union but how did they actually go from pharmacy workers to everyone else so leon davis was uh, a committed communist that's the most important thing to know about him and for communists in the 1930s the most important means of organizing labor in the country was biracial organization he didn't just want to organize the white pharmacy workers of new york city he also expanded his unionization campaign to the uh, the black soda jerks and porters and pharmacy workers of Harlem uh, and in the outer boroughs as well. So, Rich, when I worked for 1199 in New York in the mid-90s, um, for me, coming from Dansville, New York, as a country mouse, really, there's no better way to say it, um, it was the first time that I worked in a workplace that was run for but run by majority people of color and that was an experience that was really important to me um i hope that I'll, i will probably will, i was probably a jerk sometimes because i had no idea what i was doing um i hope i wasn't too much of a jerk but that was one of the things that was remarkable about 1199 to me yeah a big part of 1199's growth was its commitment to that uh, biracial organizing in New York City and in the nor Northeast generally. So its most famous formative strike was in 1959. Uh, Leon Davis in 1199 had effectively organized all the pharmacies in New York City by this point. And they started looking at the private hospitals in the city. Uh, private hospitals, if you can imagine, were uh, even worse places for nurses to work at the time. Nurses, orderlies, other hospital staff, very low paid work. Uh, broad indifference to worker safety um, and because the nurses and the orderlies were primarily people of color uh, the white doctors and the white administrators treated them as disposable so in 1959 1199 let a two month and a half long strike against six of the largest city uh, hospitals notably Mount Sinai and uh, other familiar names that didn't end in a unbridled win uh, it ended in kind of a mediation uh, and a board set up uh, for nurses and other hospital staff to negotiate for their rights. Uh, but eventually, you know, 1199 was able to build on the momentum of that organization campaign, uh, establish unions in most of the, the hospitals in the city, gain recognition uh, under state law of the rights of nurses and hospital staff to organize in hospitals. Uh, and through that built real... Uh, power. This is the 1960s, uh, 1199, in large part because of its grassroots organization among people of color, was deeply involved in the civil rights campaign. Uh, Martin Luther King famously called 1199 his favorite union. Mm -hmm. uh, they still broadcast that in every piece of literature they have to this day, right? Mm -hmm. Justly so, in my opinion. Uh, and like Karen said, they've maintained uh, that sense of power and presence as a social movement union ever since. Uh, they've organized to protect Medicaid. Uh, they've organized on behalf of gay rights. Uh, every uh, The Fight for 15 has a lot of major funding from 1199. Every major social campaign uh, over the past generation has had 1199's uh, monetary backing, 
it's a large union. It has a lot of money. Uh, and also it's, uh, uh, it's shoe leather campaign. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's workers are uh, notoriously engaged, uh, go out and vote and go out and support their favorite candidates and favorite mm-hmm. policies. Uh, if you have the backing of 1199, you have the backing of uh, an army of committed workers. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to mention uh, for listeners in the Rochester area that 1199 does cover some of the workers in the Rochester healthcare system, but not not the nurses. Um, and for a little bit more regional reach, uh, CWA, the Communication Workers of America, covers nurses in the Buffalo healthcare systems. Um, thank you for that history, Rich. That was really sort of a helpful perspective to bring, it kind of brings us full circle from the beginning of the show. We're running out of time. Any final thoughts? Um, I mean, I, I just think this whole discussion just, just emphasizes the need for A, you know, labor organizing and B, uh, labor organizing that is connected to broader social movements because everything's connected. And if you, and, and you fail, um, uh, you know, you put your own self at risk if you fail to make those connections. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, you. Thanks. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.